Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. and movies it's a special in one year out the other edition as with 2017 in the can team truth and movies celebrate the best of the year's cinematic output with our films of the year truth and movies a little white lies podcast yeah welcome everybody and a particularly packed edition of truth and movies today we have david jenkins hi there we have hannah woodhead hi we have adam woodwood hello and we also have a very special guest edgar wright Hello. I uh, feel like I should be a wood right or something. Yeah, <laughs> that would work. Edgar, it's so marvellous to have you here with us, out of Hollywood and that. <laughs> Do you usually drop in on film review podcast things? Uh, I mean, I've done podcasts before. Yeah. It's not a completely alien concept to me. All right. Um, I think so. I mean, not maybe in terms of reviewing lots of other things, but I, I have not done this podcast before, that's for That's sure. certainly true. It's kind of crossing a line, isn't it? Because you've got the filmmakers and, and then you've got the people who shoot them down. I know. If you start slagging off films that by friends of mine, I might go quiet. Right. Or <laughs> if you think Edgar Wright went quiet, it's because he knows that person. Yeah. <laughs> of course, there's one of your films is actually kind of within our pool of selection this year. Could that get embarrassing? We, we'll see, we'll see, because we're, we're all going to nominate, basically, I think, two films of the year, which we managed to dovetail quite nicely. Nobody's picked the same as, as anybody else. I believe I'm going to start, and I'm going to start with Get Out, which I'm amazed that nobody else had on their list, because it's just an extraordinary... I had it on my list, but oh, I was did told you, that somebody else was doing it. It's so. almost like we planned it. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it on your list, Edgar? Well, full disclosure, Jordan is a friend of mine. However... It's funny, I saw the film and it was an extraordinary thing because I had sort of three different phases of like enjoyment about that because the first time I heard about it was he told me about it over lunch because he wanted to pick my brains. He said, can I, we get lunch because I want to pick your brains because I'm doing my directorial debut and he wanted me to break down my shooting plan for the bathroom fight in the world's end, which I did. And then he told me what the film was basically about and he said, oh, it's, it's like a Stepford Wives or Invasion of the Body Snatchers but about race. And, um, you know, and I said, oh, are you, are you going to be in it? I assumed he was going to be in it. He goes, no, I'm just directing. And I said, oh, this is great. You know, so this is interesting. And then I saw the movie before it came out with a preview audience. And it was an amazing screening. But I remember coming away and I told Jordan afterwards that I loved it. I remember coming away thinking, I have no idea how that movie's going to do. Uh-huh. You know, like it's an uncomfortable film to watch. And it's very enjoyable, but it's also, you know, it's uncomfortable in terms of its kind of themes and even the satire. And that's one of the things that makes it electric to watch with an audience is because it is so sort of unflinching and uh, 
and savage in its kind of satire. It could either sort of like, you know, do really well critically, but like be too uncomfortable for audiences or it could do really well. And I think it then went like beyond that. It was sort of like outgrossed like King Kong. You know, it made like 170 million in the United States on a 5 million budget, Mm -hmm. which immediately makes it one of the biggest sort of profit makers of all time. It's kind of incredible. And actually, I just watched it again for the second time, and I think it really holds up on a second watch. Okay. Yeah, it's great. For anyone who hasn't seen it, without giving too much away, it's uh, all about a young African-American who meets with his uh, white girlfriend's parents for a weekend in their secluded estate in the woods. Things then take a very dark and uh, well, bizarre turn. It's a film that blinds... I mean, it certainly blindsided me. I didn't have the, the benefit of a, a lunch with Jordan Peele beforehand. I thought I was just watching a horror film, and I was greatly relieved to find that it wasn't really that scary a movie. But it, it does really shock you in so many ways. And interesting you mentioned The Stepford Wives, because there's obviously that. I thought They Live as well was, mm. was something it reminded me of, because that whole thing of marrying horror and some kind of social commentary. When Jordan described it to you, did he describe it as a comedy, as a horror film, or, or, or what exactly? I had met him a number of times like through comedy because obviously he was part of Key and Peele who were a big double act. But you could see even in that show that he had a real love for film. And in fact, I think the first sketch on that show that I really <laughs> like sort of connected with me was the Key and Peele playing the valets. I don't know if you've ever seen that sort of sketch where they're the action movie obsessed valets. <laughs> so it was clear even just meeting Jordan for the first time that he was a major like film nerd. And then when we started talking, I didn't realize what a big horror fan he was. And that obviously is something that, like, you know, his whole reason for making the film is he thought that black horror fans had been massively underserved, right? you know, as an audience, because, you know, that audience shows up for horror movies, but there's not that many horror movies with a black lead. Mm. You know? Although Night of the Living Dead, which we yes. covered in uh, Film Club mm. yeah. a while ago. That's funny enough, when I saw the movie, I tweeted about it. And this is something you do with your friends who are directors, is like you say, I'm going to tweet about the movie. When would be the best time to tweet? Do you want me to tweet right now, or do you want me to tweet the night before it comes out? Right. And I think like a couple of days later, like Jordan texted me and said, tweet now. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said something about Get Out. And I I think what I said about Get Out is that Get Out is a film that makes you jump and think. And I said, Dwayne Jones would be very proud. Mm. Dwayne Jones is obviously the, the lead of Night of the Living Dead. The other good film with a, with a, uh, the I, a horror movie that I really like in a similar sort of way is Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. Oh. Which, if you haven't seen that movie... I haven't seen that one. It's really good. I think it is actually his best movie. And that's another one that has, like, sort of... is a horror movie, but also political, social satire at the same time. Have you seen that, David? Do you know what? I haven't seen that one. No. Right. Well, you know what, guys? Just let's stop doing this podcast right now and go <laughs> oh, watch man. it. But I highly <laughs> recommend The People Under the Stairs from 1991, I think. All right. Get yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's interesting what you're saying about him being a big horror nut and a, and a film... Uh, you know his film knowledge because I watched it for a second time and there's so many little easter eggs and things there's a scene where Chris's friend is is at the airport and the flight announcement comes over and it's the room from The Shining is right, right, the, the right. flight number and there's loads of little nice bits like that which I didn't pick up on the first time around but yeah it's definitely one that has a lot of rewatch value I think yeah I remember seeing it in the cinema and I can't remember this happening before but there were people like doubled over laughing like falling off their seat and Screaming at the same time in in shock. I right. mean, it's Transformers. I had that in. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How you can make a film that hits those two poles simultaneously just yeah. seems like 
an incredible feat. Yeah, itself. especially when you, I mean you've done a bit of genre hopping as well. What I also loved about this film was the title. I mean, it's one of the great movie titles, and it's funny how people get titles wrong. Is it the director that decides, or is it the studio, or is it some kind of marketing kind of process? How do they arrive at a title? Well, it depends if you've written it as well. I mean, if you're a writer director, then you pick the title. You know, certainly there are things where the studio will want to change the title. If you're not like the writer director, you might not be completely in control of that. Right. So, um, Hot Fuzz, was that your name? It was. Bingo. You know what's funny though is that originally, and Simon Pegg didn't like it, originally I had it spelled with two T's (laughs) and he used to drive Simon crazy. (laughs) And then eventually he said, um, please, can we drop the second T? And I said, all right. But funny enough, there's a funny thing about that was uh, we had already like test screened it in the UK and it had done very well in the UK, like the test screenings. And we did a test screening in the States and the film tested really well, but usually sometimes with the studios, they have some ulterior motive for testing it. And they usually spring this kind of like their secret agenda within the focus group. And what I was not aware of was that they didn't like the title and they were confused about it. So suddenly in the focus group, the the NRG person, that's the kind of research um, group, they do all these test screenings said and what do we think about the title what does the title hot fuzz mean to you <laughs> and um i was sitting in the back and there was like these you know kind of like old american ladies going well oh, hot fuzz i don't know what that means is that a british expression and i was like one at the back i was like and fuzz is the name from the 20s the police used to call you know and you know where the fuzz comes from do you know where it actually comes from no. in like the turn of the century most of the police in New York were Irish and they all had moustaches and beards. So yeah. it's because they had face fuzz. It's oh, like, so it's such an American come term. The fuzz. It's in, it is an American term, okay. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because there's a movie, there's, a, there's movies like Fuzz with Burt Reynolds from the 70s. Right. And also Super Fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> it is an American expression. Right. But it comes from the fact that the New York pol- Irish police had, had facial face, hair. Facial hair. I really digressed. I really thrown <laughs> no, your good. podcast no, no, off several that, times already. I'm sorry. Un- un- unlike screening groups, we, we don't have an agenda. Uh, <laughs> but great titles, though. I thought Baby Driver was, was a pretty good one. Did you have an exclamation mark on that or not? No. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> that's Mother. Yeah. Uh, Baby Driver, uh, which is, is my other film of the year. Thank Edgar. you. It would have been Paddington 2, but Paul King couldn't make it in today. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I... I, I enjoy lots of Say things. Say that, Paul King. Yeah. <laughs> and, but with Paddington 2, Can I Just Throw In, was a wonderful film. Left me really glowing for, for days afterwards. But most of all, like going to the cinema to enjoy myself. And I don't think there's another film that gave me as much enjoyment this year as, as Baby Driver. It was absolutely wonderful. Also because the premise, the cast, the kind of elements you were bringing in, I mean, the amount of ambition there was in this, of essentially making a musical, uh, I mean, I've seen it described as Pulp Fiction meets La La Land, so often you hear about stuff like this and it just doesn't quite come off or it's too self-consciously trying to create something. But this played true from really the, the word go. Are you surprised at how successful it was? This was a project you'd nursed for how long? I literally had had the first germ of the idea like 22 years ago when I was like 21. I remember specifically I was living in Wood Green and I was listening a lot to the John Spencer Blues Explosion because that album had just come out. And so when I used to listen to that song, Bell Bottoms, that opens the movie, I used to sort of imagine this car chase. And then, you know, over the years, I sort of tried to think of what the movie was that would start with that scene. And then that started to turn into the idea of the, the driver 
playing the music and the driver needing to have the music on the entire time. And then sort of it just kept sort of like developing, like, you know, in my head, you know. So I, I, it's, it's been something that I've been thinking about for so long. But I didn't really have any idea how it would do. I think when you're actually making a movie, all that you're worried about is like, will it make back enough money for me to do enough? <laughs> <laughs> so, how so has it done? It did fantastic. Like, uh, I mean, it's not my biggest film in the UK. That is still Hot Fuzz, my second biggest film in the UK. But in the States, it outgrossed all of my other movies put together which was really nice. And it also made back its budget like five times over, so that's also nice. What is the level that is considered like, pat on the back, good job? Here's well, another. they're supposed to, the studio math that they do, uh-huh. which is slightly alarming, so you're supposed to sort of make back three times your budget. That's when you're fully in the black. But, but anyway, but it, it did well. I mean, I feel mm. very like happy because it was... These are exactly the kind of movies I grew up on. Mm. But sort of Hollywood for the most part have stopped making like mid-budget movies they're either making like tiny budget movies like Get Out or they're making like 250 300 million <laughs> movies like Justice League Yeah, and the sort of the ones in the middle the films that I grew up on don't get made so much anymore so why is that do you think? because I think studios just to sort of put way too much of their energy into doing the franchise films right and then the mid-budget films are sort of treated like side bets, if that. I mean, I think there's sort of like there's such a franchise mentality, something that's just like a one-off film. In their minds, and I think they're wrong. It's almost like, well, why would we bother making this film that like has no franchise potential? Or... Yeah, because it's, it's not like just mid-sized sort of... movies; it's like original movies, basically. Yes, but the irony is, is that when you you do get those movies, sometimes they can completely clean up, you know. So. I don't know. It's a shame because it sort of it seems to me it would be, you know, you have more chance of having sort of bigger hits with films that don't cost two hundred million, mm. you know. So I was very pleased that it did well because it felt like suddenly beyond even just me, it felt like there was a lot of other things riding on it because there's that thing when movies come out that if it's an original movie or something that's not a franchise and it doesn't do well, you'll have like somebody at one of the trade magazines saying, audiences don't want to see original movies. <laughs> so you think you have so much riding on your like your one film that they tend to, like, every Monday when the box office like sort of reports come out, <laughs> they then like sort of like judge the future of all movies on the success of one, you know. Well, thank goodness it, it worked out. And this is, anyway, the story of, of Baby, who uh, is a getaway driver who wants to get out of the game but is drawn back in, brilliantly enough, and I twist this, for one last job. I know. <laughs> have you ever heard that one before? <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you really should. Have you, how many times have you seen it back? Do you re-watch stuff after it's kind of been put out? You know, you watch it a lot when you're editing it, and then you do test screenings. I think right. I did three test screenings. And then I think, you know, when you're doing the mix and stuff, you watch it a whole bunch of times. So I've seen it several times. In terms of actually... Have I seen it with a paying audience? I don't think I have. No. I think I saw it at like three different premieres during the press tour. Right. And usually it would be on the basis of whether the cinema was good. Like I think the last time I watched it all the way through was me and Ansel Elgott watched it together in New Zealand <laughs> at the Embassy Theatre because it was like the largest screen in the Southern Hemisphere. Wow. And I said, <laughs> we should watch it tonight because this is a really good screen. What's the bit you're happiest with about it when, when you watch it back? Is there something in particular that you think, yeah, I nailed that? There are several moments in the movie that I like sort of just like is exactly 
what I had in my head and then sometimes more so you know that's the great thing about working with other collaborators not just actors mm. but also crew members where you know they elevate what you've done on the page or they elevate like what you know you had in your head and sometimes that can be an actor like I don't think when I wrote the script I ever thought I would have somebody like Jamie Foxx playing that part and he kind of like just kind of brings it to sort of like a amazing life that like a, a better movie star than I could ever hoped in that part and there are sometimes with sort of like the sort of choreography and the music and the stunts all coming together like I think one of my favorite bits in the movie is is the whole section that has blurs intermission going into hocus pocus by focus which feels like sort of like my music geekery sort of crash landing against my sort of action movie. It's <laughs> like, almost um, two casts to the film because you've got an amazing lineup of actors, but the the music's as big a part of this and the selection yeah. of, of tracks that you have, which is eclectic, but also electric, I, I would suggest. <laughs> oh, it's a fact, I, I, you know, I could ramble on about this for ages and I know you've all got films that you want to nominate. Adam no, I feel like I've really shanghaied this podcast. No, no, I, <laughs> I actually had a question on the, on the soundtrack. I was listening to it on my way in today. I haven't seen the film again since it came out, but I, I, I could immediately imagine the scenes when I heard the songs. And yeah, I just wondered your process on that. I remember speaking to James Gunn for Guardians of the Galaxy, and he was saying about how he, you know, got this amazing mega playlist together and then sort of whittled it down and, and had an idea of like what songs would work for what scenes. And how did you do I, that? Before I started writing, I had maybe like 10 of them worked out. And usually they're all songs that I love, but they're all songs that have something interesting going on. So like Hocus Pocus is a good example because that has a really dramatic sort of like um, stop-start rhythm to it. So even just listening to that song, I was like, okay, this is like a running scene. Okay, this is going to be a foot chase. And like he's running, running, running with the guitars and then there's like a, a breakdown. Okay, now he's hiding. Okay, now there's a guitar start. Now he's running again. Sometimes I would let the song like lead me. So I would literally, like when I was starting writing, I would like listen to the song with my eyes closed and have a piece of paper and I would just like sort of like count how many like moments there were in the film and I literally then look at the piece of paper afterwards and I think okay so there's like 20 beats in that and then I go through again and like work out where those things were and start writing the scene around it and then some other times when I was uh, I knew what the plot was but if I got to a scene where I didn't have a song I would down tools and I would like find the song before I started writing again and then I would just listen to that song over and over again like there's that scene in the diner when he first meets Deborah where it has the Beach Boys instrumental let's go away for a while you know I found that like sort of when I was like trying to write the scene and then I wrote the scene to that like song on a loop so they've all got to be songs that you really like because you're going to hear them hundreds of times <laughs> and in fact there was one song that I did like get rid of because I started to get sick of it in the edit <laughs> And I, I figured out a way. We actually did a little bit of reshoots and I reshot part of a scene so I could put a different song in because I'd sort of got sick of this other song. What was the other song? I don't, wanna, I don't really <laughs> want to say because it was... I, I could say. I do like it. It was uh, Nut Rocker by B Bumble and the Stingers, which at one point was in the movie. And then at a certain point in the edit, after having seen it like 80 times, I was like, mm, I think I'm done with this song. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe it'll turn up in a future one. All right, what is your next film, by the way? That is still being deliberated. I'm reading a bunch of stuff and writing stuff, and the studio want me to do a sequel. I don't think To Baby Driver? It's been asked for, so um, it could happen. Okay, all right. 
Hannah, were you a fan of Baby Driver? I loved it. It's, it was a bit of a weird one for me because I kind of thought I'd missed it at the cinema and then um, I couldn't sleep one night so I went to Westfield, Stratford at 11 o'clock at night and it was playing. Nice. I was like, okay, yeah, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do this. And um, there were four other people in the cinema which is like my favourite kind of time to go, you know, mm. when no one else is there. And everyone like was like laughing, like enjoying themselves. And I was like, this is a really like bizarre to be sat with these four other people having this sort of experience. Like from the first second, you know, the kind of the bell bombs kicks in, it was just totally transported me. It was it was really great, yeah. Oh nice one. A joy ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our top films of twenty seventeen will continue after this. Adam Woodward. Films of the year. On the spot. Yeah. These aren't necessarily my two favourite films of the year. Okay. But they're ones that I really liked at the time and, and kind of want to revisit at some point. The first one's a documentary which is on Netflix called Icarus, which I'm sure not many people have seen. It's one of those Netflix films that kind of came out with virtually no fanfare. And, uh, you know, there's not really any reviews of it online or anything. But it's, it's interesting. It's on the surface... It's got a lot of things in it that I like. It's basically about doping in professional sport, specifically cycling. Right. This is Brian Fogel's documentary. So Brian Fogel is is an amateur cyclist. He kind of introduces the film, or it opens up with him kind of telling the story of how he's competing in these sort of uh, non-professional like Tour de France-style events and not really getting anywhere and decides to put himself on a doping programme just to see how much it would actually enhance his performance. Oh, like supersize me, but with gear. Yeah, it's kind of got that, that vibe, actually. And it's, it's one of those films that it, it starts off as one thing and just becomes something completely different and he goes down this insane rabbit hole he basically gets put in touch with a guy who is uh, involved in Russia's kind of state funded doping program it's all happening around the time that that story was exploding mm. uh, and he has this insane like access to this guy this is Grigory Rodchenko yeah yeah I'm glad you took that no who's, <laughs> who's since become a major figure in the kind of exposure of, of the state sponsored doping in Russia it's a fascinating story and it's just also really interesting like from a journalistic point of view mm. he, he sort of takes on the mantle of okay I've, I've got this thing here and I need to like nurture it and do something with it and, and also he's built up this relationship and this rapport with this guy he doesn't basically want to throw the guy under the bus he's quite sensitive about how he like handles that and it's just very yeah it's very fascinating mm. it's, it's sort of like catfish level of like wow this is just going somewhere that I didn't expect I saw it at the Sheffield Dock Fest and yeah I mean you know to sort of emphasise the, the sort of power of journalism and how it can affect the sort of powers that be the director was there and he <coughs> did a Q&A and um, the person from the festival was sort of asking him questions and then on the sidelines there were these two like literally the biggest people I've ever seen in like tan suits and aviator shades with their arms folded like looking out at the audience he just had these two giant bodyguards walking around anywhere he was having a coffee in the cafe and these two bodyguards were like around him because you know it was the same I saw it at BAFTA and exactly the same <laughs> thing happened yeah this, this poor guy now he's got do a... you have bodyguards Edgar? you do when you go to some countries like um, they, you have to have bodyguards it's kind of a strange experience I don't have any bodyguards in London but you do when you go to Mexico or like sort of Japan or China. Oh, Japan, really? Yeah. I mean, usually the studio put them on. I did have one experience where I had a, a bit of a panic attack in South Korea because I had 1.4 bodyguards. <laughs> <laughs> That's I too really, many. It was too many and I couldn't handle it and I had to sort of like... Uh, like it was very strange like sort of I got to South Korea which was otherwise amazing and I had a great time but I got there and um, I was trying to go out for something, a bite to eat at 10.30 at night on a Sunday 
and I suddenly was like, I had like four bodyguards from the studio, and I went into this restaurant. I was so embarrassed that I had these people with me that I had to leave immediately and go back to the hotel. <laughs> and then the next morning, I would like sort of was supposed to go to the gym and see a trainer at like at seven in the morning. The story is already embarrassing. It's about to get worse. <laughs> and uh, at five to seven, there was a knock on my hotel room door, and it was the handler from the studio. And I said, "Oh, is everything okay?" He goes. Yes, we're here to take you to the gym. <laughs> and I looked around and the two bodyguards were there. And they said, I don't need bodyguards to go to the gym. And they said, well, they've been booked. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, So I had this very like, cringy, embarrassing thing of like being, you know, marched through a Korean hotel with like two bodyguards to go to the gym. It's already embarrassing just being in your gym gear, but yeah. not with like two bodyguards. <laughs> well, doing stuff in front of people, especially up no. No, I mean no, no, absolutely. It's yeah, embarrassing. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they're presumably quite athletic people, <laughs> so you just feel a little bit more standing pressure. there judging you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I didn't let them walk me into the gym. We got to the <laughs> door of the gym. I said, "Now I'm going in on my own." Sorry, I haven't seen Icarus yet, but I intend to at the, the first opportunity. I think it's still on Netflix, so give it, it, a, yeah, give no. it a watch. Mm. And my second one. Your second film is a ghost story, mm. which we've covered on this pod before. And we had David Lowry on actually talking about that. And yeah, it's just one of the most, I think, original and beautiful films I've seen this year. One that I didn't know what to make of so much at the time and then has really stuck with me. Yeah. A singular exploration of legacy, love, loss and the enormity of existence. A recently deceased white-sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to reconnect with his bereft wife. Disappointingly, they don't make pottery together. That was <laughs> one of my notes. But, but there's the a film. great pie scene, so that makes up yeah. for it. We were talking before about films that you don't get the first time and I really didn't understand what I was meant to be doing with this film the first time because it's a totally different approach to making cinema than you would normally see you know he's obviously not making something super commercial and it's quite free form in its sort of structure and the way it introduces and develops certain ideas but especially it's kind of idea of time the way it like plays with that is not as you would expect but he's an interesting director mm. he, he, i think he could be making like i mean he made pete's dragon with disney he could quite easily be doing that and it's nice to see him doing a bit of both I yeah. Think he's, yeah well i think peter pan he's doing a live action peter pan up next right. have, have you seen a ghost story no i haven't okay. i've been meaning to actually because i liked um i didn't see pete's dragon but i liked his previous movie and embodied yeah. saints mm. And he's also an editor, or he's an ex-editor, David Lowry, Yeah, isn't I think he? so, yeah. But I saw the trailer for A Ghost Story, and it was like seemed like it was, you know, sort of up my alley. And I, I was away when it was at the cinema, so I've been meaning to watch it. It looks great. Hmm. David, you're a fan? Yeah, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a similar boat to yourself. I, I was a bit baffled by it when I saw it at the cinema. Wasn't sure what it was, was getting at, really. But it is definitely one I want to give another go to. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was really, I think it's really interesting. It felt more like a kind of, like... This sort of experimental film you gets made in like Asia rather than like UK. It has a it had a kind of like dreamy bucolic quality to it that you don't get from American films really. Yeah. So. It's um, yeah, it's always I think a point Dave Lowry was making. It's almost like an installation. Yeah, that you you observe a bit light on narrative structure, but it's kind of been freed from that by the, the death of a protagonist. Well, great choice, Adam. Who's up next, Hannah? Yeah, I'll go next. All right, we'll hear your choices after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hannah Woodhead, your choices for films of the year. So I've chosen um, two very different films, but they both begin with G. So we have God's Own Country and Good Time. Ah. These are both like films that I kind of didn't really know much about going into and then had like the best time. I came out of God's Own Country like in tears. It's very emotional. And um, Good Time I missed completely and then saw it last week. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like the best thing I've seen all year. How did I miss this? So, um, yeah, I think very, very different films, but both incredibly worth your time. Mm. Good Time is, a, is an amazing film, isn't it? Yeah, it, I know it, you guys talked about it on the pod, but it just passed everyone by because it was released for about a week in cinemas on eight sites across the UK, which is like nothing. And then it's gone on to Curzon Home Video. It's coming out on Blu-ray in the new year over here. But, um, yeah, it kind of just passed everyone by, which is such a shame. It's brilliant, like, beautifully short film, The Safety Brothers. And... Um, Robert Pattinson, who of course is, you know, Twilight and Harry Potter alumni, gives this like powerhouse performance, this like really difficult performance as um this con man who's uh trying to get like help his brother get out of prison and uh yeah, it was just everything came together so spectacularly, it kinda of blindsided me. Like the mm. music is like some of the best, not even in just film like I've heard all year. And yeah, it's I would say, like, go and watch it straight away, especially at Christmas. Perfect family viewing, Boxing Day, you know. <laughs> Get good time on the on-demand. It's a really intense film, isn't it? From the very start, it just yeah, kind of yeah. whacks it straight up to ten and keeps going. Yeah, it's, like, been uh, hit in the face repeatedly, but, like, nice. in a nice way, you yeah. know. It's sort With of unrelenting, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that this year, actually, I, I just want to chime in and say Robert Pattinson has, like, in 2017, I think, become, like one of the greats I mean he's astonishing in the lead in good time he's kind of channeling De Niro in in Mean Streets you know just that relentless hustle and also he's incredible in the film uh, Lost City of Zed where he plays a sort of supporting role mm. and it's this quite kind of like retiring gaunt figure it's like he's channeling John Hurt it's just this astonishing in the background performance that he's really not trying to sort of take the limelight in this film which is kind of you know Charlie Hunnam is the main character in it in the background he just you're kind of relentlessly drawn to him he, he is like astonishing I can't wait to see what he does next oh, yeah. it's, it's certainly he's brilliant there's been an amazing film and, and really different rhythm should we say to uh, God's Own Country Ek, have you seen Good Time? Yeah I liked it a lot I um, the Safdie brothers I um, saw one of their previous movies Daddy Long Legs and in fact, I was on the Independent Spirits jury that year and we gave it, I think we gave it a couple of awards or we definitely nominated it for a couple of things because what's one of the, the co-writers' name, their friend Ronald Bronfman, I yeah, think? Yeah, he's, he's in the film. 
Yeah, and yeah. he's in Daddy. He's, he's the star of Daddy Long Legs. Yeah, and I remember the Independent Spirits. We ended up giving him. He got nominated for Best Actor that year, <laughs> along with the movie. But I, I think one of the things that they do really well is that you never get a sense that there's a crew there at all. They're so good at shooting mm. cities. And when I was watching that movie, I felt like I think it seems like. There's not a single scene where they have location permits. It feels like they're yeah. just like shooting on the streets with those actors. I don't know whether that's true, but in the two films I've seen of those, Daddy Longlegs and Good Time, it feels like this is the city represented very naturalistically and you never get the sense that you're watching like a movie. Mm. And they're really good at doing the grime and grit of like the sort of urban areas. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. We've, we've actually got an interview with them on that very subject yeah. where they're talking about the idea of for them living in a city is bumping into people yeah. and that's kind of like anathema to movie making because yeah. you have to it's a very kind of controlled environment and that's what they go for they have permits but they, they let people walk into the frame and they, right. they sort of let the sort of natural hum of the area persist while they're shooting they normally do you let passers-by come through is it or is it a very strictly controlled street scene usually you do have to kind of like hold people but usually it's 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 two things is like if you've got lots of money, you could kind of close a street down. But usually how it's done is that you have like PAs who are just asking people politely not to walk through mm. shot. In Shaun of the Dead, there's that scene where he walks from his house to the corner shop and back, all in one Steadicam shot, which we shot in Crouch End. Now, we're a low-budget film doing that, so all you can do, even as you traverse like three blocks is have PAs hiding around the corners like trying to hold people. And I remember we did like maybe like eight takes of that shot. But one of the takes which we'd nearly finished, Simon Pegg is almost back to his house. This drunk guy walks through the end of the shot and goes, F*** you guys! <laughs> and it was like, ah! And it was like, because the also the PA is not allowed to touch somebody. Right. You have to say, oh, please, could you just stand there? It'll just be 30 seconds, please. Yeah, I mean, similar thing actually in Baby Driver, that shot where he goes to get coffees. Mm-hmm the opening sequence which again goes through like three city blocks we had not all of the streets closed so out of the corner of every frame is like an army of PAs <laughs> stopping cars and trying to stop people walking through I think it you know it's very different from a good time where that makes total sense that they would try and sort of create the kind of the busyness of it in the baby driver shot you know it's all so choreographed that you don't want yeah. a member of the public to come through and sometimes I've done sometimes I've had a thing where like there's somebody gawking at the camera who's like looking right down the barrel of the camera and it's right in the middle of like an otherwise great shot and it's like let's digitally remove that person yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> let's get rid of that person yeah. so Hannah tell us a little bit about God's Own Country which as I say really different um, yeah, very, very rhythm different. to um, a good time Again, this is one I don't think it got much of a wide release. That has changed now. It's coming back into cinemas, I think. Oh, really? But, yeah, directorial debut from uh, Francis Lee, who's a Yorkshire filmmaker. I'm from Yorkshire, so there was kind of like this nice connection for me of going to cinema and seeing where I come from on the big screen, and it's not portrayed as this horrible, miserable place, which every other film about Yorkshire seems to do. And um, it's this love story between a young farmer and the man who comes to sort of help him out, the um, immigrant. And it's really, like, really beautifully shot, really simple, really sort of stripped back. Uh, Nothing sort of feels contrived about it. Two amazing performances from the lead actors who kind of, like, it is basically a lot of the time just them sat in fields. 
So, you know, they kind of have to do a lot of work mm. and portray these really sort of men who've grown up not talking about their feelings, not communicating with each other, with any anyone really. And um, you felt like you were watching something special. You felt like it was a story that isn't told in cinema. You know, same-sex love stories still, even to this day, like it's 2017, there still aren't a lot of them. This year has been pretty good. But God's Own Country, yeah, for me, it just felt like really sort of transformative and not not just like a same-sex love story, just a love story. Yeah, it's not an issue film particularly, but it's no. a tremendously organic telling of it, the way he just essentially plants all the elements and you just watch them kind of un- yeah. unfold in, in real time. Amazing film. Adam? Yeah, thumbs up from me. All right, super. Uh, lovely. All right, well, uh, David, you're up next. Sure. Two films from you. David Jenkins, Films of the Year. The first film is, in fact, it, I think it's kind of interesting we talk, like, Edgar talking about this idea of these original movies that have kind of transcended the the shackles of the of the franchise in 2017 and you've we've had get out and uh, and baby driver and i think girls trip is actually another one of these films that has was massively successful beyond any expectation mm. so uh, far we've agreed on everything in this podcast i think everyone's been pretty much on board with with every film choice yeah so one of your films of the year is, is girls trip yeah i mean i'm <laughs> i'm sort of like you know singing from the heart here i think right. i didn't go and see a, a press preview of it and Frankly, I hadn't planned to see the film, but a bunch of people went to see it. And when we got our own review in from a reviewer in the States who'd covered it for us, who was just, you know, surprisingly waxing very lyrical about it. And it was a case of I was wandering around on a, like Hannah and Baby Driver. I was wandering around on a Sunday on Holloway Road, as you do. And uh, and it was on and I was just like, I'm just going to watch this. And uh, was there with, with my wife and we, we took it in and it was an absolute hoot. And uh yeah, it's about these four kind of high school friends. They have kind of retained their relationship over the years, but they obviously have changed over the years. And um, they decide to go to this kind of fashion and uh, lifestyle festival in New Orleans. And uh, and they're also there on a bit of a kind of drink up. And they're various kind of, you know, they have little sort of scrapes and falling outs and they kind of come to a head. And two things to mention, I think, is that you have Jada Pinkett Smith. And um, in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, she had a, a role in the film Magic Mike oh, XXL. She's so, so good in that. And I, when I saw that film, I was like, she's surely got to win some kind of award for that role, like Best Supporting Actor. And uh, yeah, for some, it was just, you know, tumbleweeds on that front. So I was really upset, but very glad to see her in this film again, mm-hmm. as good, proving that that wasn't just a sort of one-off with uh, Magic Mike. But the real kind of top trump here is this, this actor who I'd never I'd never heard of her before, called Tiffany Haddish, and I mean it's literally like nothing you've ever seen. I mean every single syllable she utters manages to be hilarious. There is something kind of in her bones that is funny. I don't know if you had this experience when I remember watching Ghostbusters as a kid. I just always wanted Bill Murray to be on the screen, like because because like whatever he did in the in the film, he, it, the sort of the camera would gravitate towards him and and you'd kind of you'd anticipate something funny was about to happen even if it was just through some small facial expression or how he reacts to someone else saying something and i think she has a kind of like 
it's that kind of level of greatness in this wow. film. So. It's a surprise choice, but you said it really well. Yeah, it's really, really funny. It's Can I get not, a second opinion? Is anyone else? It is very good. I would say the grapefruit scene is a, a highlight for me. Oh yeah, there's a Which very good good grapefruit scene, and there's a very good scene involving a bizarre kind of like zip line between two bars on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, which right. stops in the middle and with hilarious results. <laughs> and my second choice is, is called By Your Name, uh, Luca Guadagnino, the sort of adaptation of the novel by Andre Ackman. It's a kind of summertime gay love story set sometime in the 80s, and it stars Army Hammer and um, Timothy Chalamet. It's basically this kind of Italian country garden and Army Hammer arrives over there as an intern and he you know has this kind of affair with a with a younger boy well, it's actually he doesn't have an affair they very mutually fall in love together and mm. in, in a very kind of equal way i saw this film like three times in the cinema because i just absolutely loved it it's kind of strange in that it is this idea about this kid who's who's having a kind of boring summer and all of a sudden something happens and it's all automatically like enlivened and electric and and very very life-affirming and I think the film is kind of similar in that way in that it's quite a slow build-up where you're sort of not quite sure what's happening and you're kind of loping around wondering where this is going to go and then all of a sudden it just there's a point where it just locks into place. Mm. Um, it was a big cover feature for yeah, Little White yeah, Lies. Yeah, we, we had it on our cover. Did everybody in the Little White Lies kind of organisation, was everybody as wild about it as you? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but we we did all go and see it together at Sony and we all had a sort of like moment outside afterwards, which was very, very beautiful. Well, I, I, you guys covered it before I started at Little White Lies, but I went to see it at London Film Festival at like 8am on a Wednesday mm. at the Odeon Leicester Square, which is not the nicest cinema in the world. And, um, you know, critic screening full of like absolutely packed to the rafters. And um, I absolutely loved it. It was just a magical film. I've not seen many things like it on the screen uh, this year. And um, Safjan Stevens, who's one of my all-time great favourite artists, does the uh, soundtrack, and he wrote two songs for the film, which, again, like, absolutely beautiful. It's just, yeah, it's really, really magical is the only word I can use to describe yeah. it. Yeah. It could have had Shia LaBeouf in it. Did you I know? know? That's, that's quite a thought. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I think one of the things also that, yeah, the music is great. It uses music in, I guess, in a, in a sort of very different way to how Edgar uses it in Baby Driver, music kind of like will suddenly sort of fade into a scene and fade out at quite kind of random moments but in a, yeah it's very strange use of music in that way but it's it's kind of beautiful i also loved it you did, <laughs> yeah. I did. yeah yeah it was great i've only seen it once but i really enjoyed it just the once i mean i haven't had a chance to watch it the second okay. time but i will all right <laughs> wow an outstanding selection of films and girls trip uh, so far <laughs> wow in this end of year roundup What's Edgar Wright going to nominate for his films of the year? We'll discover after this. The Filmmaker's Films for 2017. Well, um, I think it's been a really good year, actually. I've seen like most of the sort of end-of-year movies. Uh, the Shape of Water, I think, is like really pretty extraordinary. And, you know, Guillermo del Toro working at the sort of peak of his powers. I like Phantom Thread, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie which was filmed only blocks away from where we are right now. Which really? Which is kind of crazy. It's in Fitzroy Square, most of that Is movie. it? Yeah. Okay, it hasn't come out yet. As, as, um... It's actually like Paul Thomas Anderson making a British film. Really great, but um, Brits especially will enjoy scenes with 
Daniel Day-Lewis and Julia Davis together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's so great, like, you know, it's funny sort of seeing him be like a British director. It's funny. Okay, my picks, my two picks of two films that I thought were pretty extraordinary is um, Raw, directed by Julia Ducano. With, uh, I think that's how we would say her name. <laughs> Ducano. But a French horror film, directorial debut... I saw that at the cinema. I'd heard so much buzz about it, and uh, I just heard about people fainting at festivals. <laughs> and uh, but I also heard that it was really well directed. And I was—it was one of those things where, like, you hear a lot of buzz about a movie, and it like really lived up to the hype. I thought it was for a first film; it was really extraordinary, and it kind of like gave me vibes of like early Cronenberg. You know, it's about a girl that goes to medical school, veterinarian school, actually, trained to be a vet. <laughs> And um, through her hazing, she's vegan, and through her hazing, she has to eat raw meat for the first time ever. And then she develops a taste for flesh. And it's one of those movies where it takes a sort of like a potentially schlocky kind of premise and, you know, treats it with real intelligence and uh, even sensitivity. It's like one of those great horror films where you're completely on the heroine's side even though she's like descending into kind of madness and I always like those kind of horror films whether you have things like Kronos or like George Romero's Martin or Carrie even where Mm. you know it's sympathetic towards the person who's has the you know the problem but I just thought um it was like really really confidently directed and, and this is a uh, debut from like, Jordan Peele's the, yeah. Get Out. Is it easier in some ways to make your first film because almost perhaps because you don't know how difficult it's going to be? You're almost stronger in your vision than when you make the second one? I don't know. I think there's just an alchemy at work because there's plenty of people's first films that are like not their best, you know. So it, it really depends. I think Was Shaun of the Dead your first? Or did no. You t- I made a film nine years before Shaun of the Dead called A Fistful of Fingers and it is not my best film I'd like to find a film fan out there that thinks it is my best <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like Shaun of the Dead is my first film because mm. I feel like it's the film that was closer to what I had in my head right but you know then you get films like Get Out or Raw which kind of seem to sort of arrive at the cinema fully formed yeah and I just thought I watched that movie and I was like what is this person going to do next this is incredible and I saw it it was not dissimilar to your baby driver experience. There was hardly anybody there, but the people who were there were going crazy. And there were lots of people on dates, and it has a couple of scenes <laughs> which are like, um, you know, proper like cover your eyes stuff where the entire audience was like cringing down in their seats. But I, I highly recommend it. I thought it was like a fantastic movie, and I'll, I'll watch anything that she does after that. Raw. Do you and your other filmmaker. I got to talk about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk because I think sort of. Again, talking about big studio movies and sort of like, you know, creative gambles, I think what's amazing about Dunkirk is like how sort of formally daring it is, Mm. Uh, especially for like a big sort of like Hollywood summer movie. And then, you know, a movie that, um, you know, I think grossed, I don't know, like sort of 150 million or more maybe. I love the fact that it was connected with audiences and it was a big hit because I think what is fascinating about it is that it takes a more kind of um, experiential, clinical approach to it. It's a very different movie from, like, say, Saving Private Ryan, Mm. which is a movie that has that incredible opening and then sort of settles into being like a more conventional movie. Still very good and amazing, amazing sequences in it. But what I liked about Dunkirk, and I've heard this said as criticism of of the movie, but I love this aspect, is that... 
you don't find out any backstory about any of the characters. You're just like sort of dropped in there with these guys. And really the whole premise of the movie is to show you like what a like a hellish like three days this is. Actually, maybe it's like a week, a day and an hour. That's it. The land part is a week. Mm -hmm. The sea part is a day and the air part is an hour. You have the three different timelines non-linear for the sort of first two acts of the movie and then in the third act it all goes into real time and that's some really like clever like sort of um structural work i thought it was amazing i really like was kind of blown away by it and by stripping out some of the war movie stuff that you have in every other movie the point where somebody says about um their girl back home or like talks about you know bonds with people and all, most of those things are gone you mm. know and it's a lot sort of it's and as such it's a, a colder movie but I thought that was great like a movie made by a big Hollywood studio that feels very European to me so um, I thought that was an amazing movie I saw this movie recently called uh, Darkest Hour oh yeah which has got Gary Oldman as Churchill and it plays like the kind of bits that you'd have expected Dunkirk to have in it, the politicians moving things across maps and things like that, because it's happening, it's basically the kind of, the inauguration of Churchill and the run-up to Dunkirk and that making that decision. So yeah. they're very, very different films, but it's interesting, like, watching them as a double bill. You know, with Darkest Hour, you don't see any fighting, you know, seconds, like, as kind of montage. But then Dunkirk's obviously the opposite, where you get no context. And is, I, is I love the fact that there's no context. Is Darkest Hour good? I mean, I wasn't that taken... Like, Gary Oldman's amazing, yeah. I will say. But yeah, it's for me, it felt like a certain type of, of British film. Right. Not my sort of cup of tea, maybe. Mm. I think the thing that I liked about Dunkirk was that it did feel like something I hadn't seen before, which um, Christopher Nolan, you know, time and time again, proves that he can just take this idea and totally flip it on its head. It kind of introduced me to uh, the excellent Barry Kian, I think mm. that's his name, who... Um, wasn't in it very much, but then did Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is also great. He's as nice in Dunkirk as he is nasty in Killing of a Sacred Deer. <laughs> yeah, he's so earnest <laughs> and sweet in Dunkirk and then, yeah, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, but yeah, it kind of introduced this new raft of like young British talent, which is really nice. And then, of course, you have people like Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hardy in it as well, and Mark Rylance, of course. Um, yeah. So there's kind of marrying of like the new and old, which is really nice. I also quite appreciate that Harry Styles in it was like not a nice guy yeah I yeah. thought that was great that was a great idea like of, yeah. of having him in it uh, he, he looks like Jack Wilde Harry Styles yeah. like he's sort of got an artful dodger like aspect of that <laughs> but I thought it was a great piece of casting where like he wasn't the nicest guy in the he was like the you know he wasn't just the kid from One Direction which was really nice because no. I was a bit cynical and then sort of no no actually pretty there smart. were no song and dance numbers which I was disappointed <laughs> by. the deleted scene where the other four got bombed <laughs> <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer. That would be if we had a list of other films that, oh, that would definitely be on there. That movie, would be in yeah. there. Although I, I know it, it, it didn't go down it, it so well with everybody. I'd Mother, have had, I'd have the had the beguiled in there as well. The beguiled, yeah. which I love. I, I, I would like to stick up for Mother as well. That would actually be on my on my list. I'm one of the people who are a big supporter of Mother! Exclamation mark. Best comedy of the year. Though, you know. <laughs> Listen, it, I think it is funny. I, I thought it was it a black is. comedy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even, yeah, I, I really liked it. I say it's a comedy just by the fact it has an exclamation mark like Airplane and Top Secret. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I saw it at Venice. That was another yeah. film at Venice. And, you know, it's interesting. I was in the first screening of that movie and it was an amazing thing to witness because you could sort of see like differing reactions happening in real time in the audience of people that were 
loving it but horrified or like me like laughing quite a lot and other people who were not on board at all. I mean, it's obviously a divisive movie, but I think it's really another one that's like, especially for a Hollywood studio movie, like really bold to be that, you know, um, take the audience on a ride like that. And I, I sort of thought, like, middle America is going to, like, not be on board <laughs> with this movie and where it goes. So I was, I got to hand it to Darren Aronofsky. Like, he always kind of goes all in every time he makes a movie. <laughs> and props to Jennifer Lawrence, because, yeah, I can't see many young actresses taking a role like that. Mm. Well, they're it. no longer together, which I think yeah, ties I think in she nicely with the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what other films would you, would you throw in then for a, a must-see list of 2017? I'd want to stick up for Logan, which I, I oh, loved yeah, yeah. earlier on. And The Big Sick as well. Which the Big is Sick, yeah. Florida Project, My Life as a Cool Jet. Did you catch oh, that? Oh, yeah, I see. That. I thought that film. was a film from last year, but I liked that movie a mm. lot. In the States, it was called My Life as a Zucchini. Of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that movie is great. The Big Sick is fantastic. Yeah. Funnily enough, talking about titles, Camille and Emily, I just sound like I'm such a name dropper, but it's true. They are very good friends of mine. I live near them in, in Los Angeles. But they had sort of struggled with that title the whole time. I'd seen the movie and they said, we got stuck on this title, The Big Sick. And they had like a list of like 100 other titles. And I was trying to help them come up with another title. And then it just stuck. And then it's just one of those titles that's just like sticky. It's like you remember it. Mm. The first time they asked me, they said, what do you think of the title, The Big Sick? And I said... It sounds like a Michael Moore documentary. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that it kind of... Now you can't think of that film being called anything else. It's no. like sometimes if it's a sticky title, whether it's like good or bad, it just helps. I do like titles where you have to kind of watch the film to find out why it's called Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Mm. Like Get Out is another one. I mean, I almost think it's a, it's a sort of... A, <laughs> Not a spoiler title, it's a sort of half-spoiler title because it means you watch the film. Yeah. I hadn't even seen the trailer, which, which actually does reveal a key kind of twist in the film. So when it happened, when the thing in the film happens, I was just like, what? You know? <laughs> we'll say as well for The Big Sick, um, really good cinema dad there from Ray Romano. Oh, yeah. Same in um, Call Me By Your Name, Michael Stolberg on top form. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, he's a great dad, isn't great he? Great cinema dad, yeah. 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 Magnificent. Right, well, that's 2017. Bosh. Anything in particular we should be keeping our eyes open for in 2018? There's two that I mentioned already. Is Shape of Water out already? No. It's not out here yet, no. Shape of Water... Phantom Thread, Foxtrot, Jessica Lagarde. There's four, like, 2017 releases, rather. I'm very excited to see Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, Mm. uh, stop-motion animation in this sort of mould of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Super. 2018, with a lot to look forward to. That wraps it up, then, for this edition of Truth and Movies, but we will be returning in the new year. Many thanks uh, to Edgar Wright for joining us today, Hannah, David, Adam, and, and you for listening in. Enjoy your festive period in the meantime. This has been a Seven Digital production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. 